Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. Let's turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we are breaking from our study in John for this week. At a, at a passage of Scripture that some of you may know, some of you might not know, um, but nevertheless it is, it is full of wonderful truths from the Word of God. And just to set the stage as you're turning there, as you're finding it, uh, just to let you know where we are in, in the timeline of this book, uh, we are in approximately 51 A.D. find ourselves in the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And he has set out with a man named Silas. They go to Philippi, they start a church there. We see later that there is a letter written to this church by Paul himself. And they found this church on the foundation of the preaching of Christ. And then they quickly find themselves in prison for preaching Christ, him and his friend Silas. And then there's the incident with the Philippian jailer and his family is saved. All because they preached Christ. And they head to Thessalonica where they preach Christ again and they ran out of there. Where they head to Berea and they preach Christ to the men and women there. And they're actually well received there until those from Thessalonica come and run Paul and Silas out of there again for preaching Christ. So I want you to just see the theme of what's going on. Paul's preaching Christ, Paul's preaching Christ. Every city he goes, he's preaching Christ. And then he finds himself in the city of Athens, where we will read today and study today, all by himself. It's just Paul, and he is in the epicenter of idol worship. There's rampant paganism here. Maybe you've seen diagrams or heard stories. This, this is a bad place. Paul's here in this pagan world. And this is where it is. And this is the title for today's message. Paul and the pagans. We will look at their interaction. Now a pagan culture is all too familiar, isn't it? Today we, we, we find ourselves somewhat in the same category. Believers in Christ in a pagan culture, in a pagan world. Now, what Paul does is going to help us greatly, and this is where we will read. We'll start in verse 15 of Acts chapter 17. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Paul and Silas, or Paul, or excuse me, Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who had happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. 
all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And Paul then stood up in the middle of the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. And I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. And so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built in human hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, He commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Now some of the people believed, or some of the people became followers of Paul, believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And now we learn first from this, if you turn your attention back to the, to the passage at the beginning, we're going to walk through it verse by verse. We learn from this first that Paul was perplexed. And this is interesting that we see this first off. Paul is perplexed. Look at verse 16. Paul was waiting for them in Athens, meaning Silas and Timothy, and he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of of idols. So Paul finds himself in Athens and he is perplexed, which is directed at the idolatry itself. It says that he's greatly distressed, meaning that he's provoked to anger. And this is an inward thing in Paul. He goes around and he sees all of the idols. He sees all of the people maybe bowing down or paying homage to all of these false gods. And Paul is greatly distressed. He's mad. In fact, the word greatly distressed is used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of God's anger. Paul is not liking what he sees. Paul is bothered by what's going on because he knew that if there's false worship going on, then there's lost souls. And he knew if there's lost souls, then there were people going to hell. And there were people going to hell in droves in the city of Athens. And one scholar even wrote about this city that it was easier to find an idol than a man in Athens at this day. So this is everywhere. You can imagine, idol here, idol there. Idol for this, idol for that. It is everywhere you go, there are idols. And Paul finds himself walking the streets, looking around, seeing this, seeing this. Oh my goodness. And then Paul is perplexed, and he feels this deep weight of grief and sorrow in him for the people who are fooled by this paganism. Now, this should be our first reaction, shouldn't it, to, to the world we live in? When, it's, when it's, there's people who are serving false gods, their idol of themselves, their idol of sports, their idol of money, job, family members, 
their idol, even their idol of church, we should break within and we should be so perplexed and deeply distressed at the fact that they are worshiping falsely. This is a lost soul and they will die and go to hell. Are you perplexed at today? And I say these things and you might be thinking, wow, this, this Athens place sounds pretty bad. I don't think that's the same as today at all. And I would agree with you, right? But I believe there's more paganism today than even in Athens. I think it's just sneakier. You, you look around and, and today you will, you will go to an NFL stadium and there will be people worshiping that sport. There will people be serving their whole lives for this game and for this money. There's people that live their whole life just to gain. And there's people who uh, take their kids and they teach them about these idols of, some people call it Baal worship. We, we have kind of changed the, the word to baseball worship, softball worship, basketball worship, volleyball worship. And it's every Sunday. It's no wonder that people are leaving Christianity, kids, when they grow up, because they weren't ever believers to begin with, because they've been duped into this scheme of idolatry. And so they grow up to be idol worshipers. Now their idol is not maybe an Athenian god. Their idol is not the unknown god as we see here. But their idol is themselves. Their idol is success. Their, their, their idol is their hobby. So today there are so many idols. There is a paganism that is rampant in our society. And some forms of paganism whether you know it or not, we'll knock on your door tomorrow night asking for a Snickers bar or a Kit Kat. And uh, you can judge for yourselves what I believe about that. And But this is different than most, Paul's reaction. Paul's being deeply distressed at the idolatry. Now, Paul was not a dumb man. Paul was an educated fellow. Paul, Paul knew the things of the world. Paul knew the thoughts of the world. Paul was an intellectual. Paul was well-educated. So he could have gone to Athens, and as we would say in our, in our wording today, he could have went to Athens and just geeked out. He could have just been a great tourist. He could have looked at all of the architecture, all of the buildings. He could have gone to this place, walk up to Mars Hill and say, that's where all of these minds of old, all of these wise people who have ever lived, they've been here and I'm, I'm, I'm just checking this out and I'm just loving this. He could have just went to go check out Athens. He could have taken his time. He could have just been amazed by everything that's gone on in this city and just enjoyed himself while he waited for his buddies to meet back up with him. But he could not do this. He could not just sit back and watch. Instead, he burned within for the souls of the people in that city. And in his burning, it drove him to preach Christ. Secondly, because of being perplexed, Paul preached Christ. Very important word in verse 17, so. We see his deeply deep distress. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now the word reasoned is not uh, understood very well today. We think he reasoned. He sat there and had a nice little casual conversation with these guys. And he said, well, maybe I see your point, but I think, I think you're looking at it wrong here. This is not what Paul did. It really means that he discussed, he argued, or even preached. This was a fire. He goes into these places and he's telling these people all these things about Christ. He's going to the Scriptures. This was his 
automatic response to being perplexed. He saw what was going on and he said, I've got to act, and I act by preaching Christ, by reasoning with them in the synagogues. This is what he did, 1 Corinthians 9, 16. It says that Paul says this, I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And that was burning within his soul that I have to get this message out. It's, it's what he did. It's like the mechanic. When there's a flat tire in the parking lot and he finds his way to you somehow to help you change your tire. It's what he does. Paul, this is what I do. Christians, this is what we do. This is our job. This is why we are here on this earth. This should be our automatic response because like Paul, we should see and know the destiny of those who don't turn to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, we know what it is to fear the Lord, so we persuade others. We know if it weren't for Christ saving us, we would spend an eternity in hell as well. And without the message of the gospel, there's no hope of salvation. And if we hold that in, we just can't do that because we are compelled to preach Christ. Paul has the same attitude. And he knows what they need. He knows the answer. And so you say, man, I don't know that he preached Christ. In verse 18 it says, he was preaching the good news about Jesus in the resurrection. He's preaching the gospel to these people. He's telling them of their sin. He's telling them of their being separate from God. He's telling them of the judgment to come. He's telling them of the only hope of salvation that is in Christ alone. And he does not withhold this message. And he's proving it to them time and time again. There was, he, didn't, he didn't have any frills. He didn't have any gimmicks. There was no light show. There was no smoke. There was no uh, band. There was nothing but Paul proclaiming and preaching Christ from the Scriptures. Now, he could have done this. He could have been perplexed and mad and angry and went home to his hotel there and thought, man, these people are losing. These people are crazy. He could have written a letter. That, these people are nuts. And he could have, went, as soon as Silas and Timothy got to him, he could have told him, man, these guys are crazy. They've got, look at all these idols. Check this out. He could have been perplexed and not preached Christ and he would have been sinning. You can be so upset at the paganism around us and just remain silent and not preach Christ and you're going to be sinning. The same goes for me. If I'm mad at the things going on in this world and I'm distressed over it, but if I don't preach Christ, I'm sinning. Paul knew this. Let's look at the audiences. Who, who's, he, who's he preaching to? Preaching to? This is going to help us greatly as well. First, he preaches to Jews and God-fearing Greeks. He goes into the Jewish synagogue. And so it's his custom. We see him doing it really throughout his ministry. He goes to the city, finds the Jewish synagogue, goes in there, opens up the Old Testament, and goes to proclaim Christ as the Messiah and the salvation only found in him. He goes to the people there because they were familiar with the law and the prophets. So he could go and he was a, hey, look here, let's go to, check this out, Isaiah 53. Let, who, who do you think that was? And then you could go to Genesis 22 maybe and say, look, Abraham said that God would provide a lamb. I'm here to proclaim to you that the lamb of God was sacrificed on a cross outside of Jerusalem and he rose again on the third day proving that he is the Messiah and he is the true Savior. Repent and believe in him. This is what he did. He did it in Berea. He did it in, we just saw it in Thessalonica where one place it was well received, one place it was not. But he did it everywhere he went. He does it here in Athens as well. And then there were those in the market, marketplace that he find himself reasoning with. This is anyone 
and everyone that he could find. He goes to where there's a crowd, and he goes talking to people, proving Christ, showing them who he is, preaching the gospel, and he did it, it says, day by day. That's interesting, because he didn't just see evangelism as an event. He didn't settle, and I love that we do these things. I wish we, we, would, be, we, we would be a part of them as much as we can. I love that we go out and specifically to evangelize people in our community. We do evangelism training, then we go and actually go and share the gospel with people, and we send you out. You go here, you go here, talk to people about Jesus here, go and preach Christ here, and we do that from time to time. I'm glad we do that, but if that is the extent of your evangelism, you're missing it. To Paul, this was not an event. This is what he did day by day. He found himself. He woke up in the morning. What am I going to do today? Well, I guess I'll go to the... It's, it's, it's Sabbath day. I guess I'll go to the synagogue. Well, it, 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 it's not Sabbath day. I'll go to the marketplace and I'll go preach Christ there. Now, some of these people in earshot, they were known as the Epicureans. Epicureans, they, they weren't openly atheists. But they believed if there was a God, He was completely inactive and impersonal. So He has really nothing to do with us. If there's a God, He's just kind of here and we're here and he, we're completely separate. They didn't believe in the afterlife to any extent. And they wanted to seek all their pleasure here. This is what, this is what they desired to do, these Epicurean people. And then there were the Stoics, another philosophic group. And they were pantheists, so they fit right in in Athens. They worshipped many gods. And they believed that their chief end was to, whether in pain or pleasure, be able to just be indifferent to whatever life throws at them. And to their ideology, this was complete maturity. They also believed this, that God and nature were closely related, or there's no difference in them. This is what they actually thought. This is what they believe. This is what they actually told people and explained to other people. And this is who Paul preached to. So you can understand, this is who he's dealing with. And in this, and when the opportunity came, Paul pointed out the lies. Thirdly, Paul pointed out the lies. In verse 18, they, they question him. They say this. They began to debate. These Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they began to debate with Paul. And some of them asked, What's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They called him a babbler. And literally it means seed picker in the Greek. And what that means is that he was just grabbing things out of thin air. He was grabbing stuff. This is, um, Paul has this idea and he grabs it over here and he grabs it over here and he just kind of puts his, this mod pods of stuff together and voila, he comes up with Jesus and the resurrection. And they thought it was so strange and so foreign to them that they made Paul out to be, he's just a babbler. He's making things up. It was a modern day, is this amateur hour? This guy is a good-for-nothing plagiarist. He's making stuff up. Not only is he making stuff up, he's just grabbing thoughts here and thoughts there and putting his own little idea together. And they say, because of this, he's advocating foreign gods because everything Paul said to them is foreign. Now, in our, in our culture, you ask somebody, what is Christianity about? Oh, it's about Jesus. They didn't even have that much knowledge. So when he said the word Jesus, when he said the word resurrection of the dead, when he said these things, they didn't understand it at all because they had no preconceptions of it. In verse 19, they do something, they do something wild. They take Paul and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. When they said to him, 
may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest idea. So here we have a latest idea, don't we? Well, this is, this is fresh stuff. Never heard anything like this before. Uh, let's bring him to the Areopagus. You maybe have heard it called Mars Hill. It was where they would meet all the minds. And if you're, if you're, if you're into history, like maybe I am, and you see these things and uh, you, you, you start putting together the things maybe you've learned, this is Aristotle's place, Plato, Socrates, or I read it the first time, Socrates, this is where he came and they put him on trial there. This is where the meeting of the minds of all time have come. This is the smartest people ever are standing here. And these guys bring Paul in to have a public hearing of what he's just been proclaiming. They're putting him essentially on trial, not to judge him, but just to see what he's all about. And still, keep in mind, this is a pagan city full of pagan people on, these, on this Mars Hill, this Areopagus. They bring him here because of his strange ideas of, that he's been proclaiming in the gospel. They never heard anything like this. And this is so familiar, right? Because 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This is utter foolishness to them. <laughs> like you, hey, you've got to come check out this guy who's been in the marketplace. He's nuts. We brought him to Mars Hill. Come listen to what he's about. This, this, guy's, this guy's crazy. Come get a good laugh. It's foolishness to him. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Oh, isn't he doing this through the message of the cross here? And he's going to do it even now. But the message of the gospel is completely strange to pagans, isn't it? Have you ever been sharing Christ with someone and they just look at you like, Are you okay? Maybe even some Christians. Air quotes, Christians. The true gospel is strange to them. You give them the real gospel and they want to hang you for it. They're mad, they're upset, I don't like that. That's not, they'll say, that's not the God I know and I would agree with them. You're right, it's not. That's the God of Scripture whom you don't know. They don't know it in Paul's day. Lost people don't know it today either. And so they question Paul, they bring him to this place and he answers them. Notice what he does in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. All of these minds, all of these powerful people are there. All the people from the city have come to hear this babbler. He stands up. That's enough courage right there just to stand. And he stands and he says, People of Athens, I see you're, in every way, very religious. I, I walked around and looked carefully at your object of worship. And I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. This is what I will proclaim to you. He goes and says, guys, you've got so much religion. You have so many gods. You even have a God just to cover all the bases to an unknown God. But you're completely ignorant. Remember, these are the people who pride themselves on being the smartest people ever. 
I can, you can maybe remember back to your school days when the smart kid in the class who really wasn't that smart and he thought maybe he could outsmart the teacher and he stood up and said something that was just completely foolish and the teacher wisely just puts him down and says, no, that's completely wrong. Did he like that and sit down or did he kind of get upset? The prideful smart kid didn't like being told you're not that smart. Paul does this right here. He says, you guys are ignorant and it strikes a nerve that they're so ignorant that they don't even know what they're worshiping. They're clueless. And so, so perfectly, so, so wise, he says, I am going to proclaim this to you. The babbler, who you think knows nothing, the dummy, I'm going to tell you what you do not know. And let me tell you, if you know about Christ, you know all you need to know. How bold. How bold to stand. How bold to speak. And so Paul pointed out their lies. He says, I'm going to show you what you do not know. I'm going to proclaim this to you. And so Paul preached again. No. I didn't just look over this this week as I was preparing and thought, oh my goodness, I have the same point one, I mean point two and point four. This is to bring out the point that this is what Paul did. Paul preached the first time, whether it was well received or not. Paul preached the second time, whether it was well received or not. This was his automatic response, remember? That's what he did. He, and, he, and he turns the table on them. It's, it's just crazy to think that he goes to the Areopagus and he doesn't sit down in a chair and they sit all around him and he says, well guys, let me, let me tell you what this really is about. Let me explain myself a little better. He does not do that. He stands up going against what they wanted to do. They wanted an intellectual discussion back and forth trial and he stands up and says, I'm going to tell you what you don't know. Here it is. He preaches, and buckle up for this sermon, he, he just gives them some depth. They, there's enough meat on these bones to chew for a month and a half. Really, your whole life. And so Paul preaches the God of creation. He starts here with even pagans. Because even pagans see creation, right? Even lost people who have no idea who God is have wondered, how'd that get there? They've looked up in the stars at night and thought, that's amazing. How'd that happen? Even these guys here, they, they even have had century-long debates over how it happened. How did it come to pass? How did all this stuff get here? He starts in the beginning. And that's why you need to take advantage of our Enriched Bible Studies next door. We have started in Genesis. We're going through there quite quickly. But we want you, as a Christian, to be equipped with the foundations of everything, which the only answer there are are in the Word of God, in the book of Genesis. We want to teach you and want you to know and believe that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And once you have that understanding, really everything else begins to fall in line behind that. Paul wants them to have this as well. He says, this God created the world and everything in it. That includes mankind. He tells them in verse 26 that all men came from one man. God made all man from all the nations from this one man. And we know that as Adam because we've read our Bibles. He tells them we all have the same origins in God who made every man from one man, Adam. 
He preaches this God of creation. He expounds on His ultimate Lordship. He said He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's over heaven. He's over earth. He's over even them. He is their Lord and they don't even know it. You don't even know who this God is who is your Lord that you have no clue about. He's even the Lord over their false gods. I love the Old Testament story where the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it there next to Dagon. Well, and the next day, they come in there and Dagon's falling flat before the Ark of the Lord. And they, how embarrassing. they got to grab their God and put him back up. Well, that's weird. I guess he fell down. But then the next day, they come back and he's not only on the ground, but all of his limbs are on the ground and broken apart. They said, you guys take this thing back. We don't, we don't want anything to do with your God because he is the Lord over all. And these people, to them, this is blasphemy. You mean what are you tell me? There's one Lord over all the lords? You mean that we can't just worship this, this God and this God for this and that? This is, again, strange to us. This could have gotten Paul easily killed preaching the exclusive lordship of God. They don't like it. They don't dig it. Paul doesn't care. He keeps telling them. He doesn't just stop there. He then starts proclaiming God's aseity. And this is a strange word to some of it, but it just means that God, and He is self-sufficient and self-satisfied in Himself. And He needs nothing, never has, never will. Here's what He says to them in verse 25. He said He's not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Most of us have this false idea that God needs us. We really need to stand up because God needs us. God needs no one. God does not need me. God does not need any one of our elders or pastors. God does not need you. God does not did not need Paul. God does not need these people in Athens. God needs nothing. Everything he does is out of his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says he's he's not served as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. He's not the one who is receiving. He's the one who's giving. I'm perplexed when you walk into some place and they may have a little Hindu cat there and they have a little piece of food next to the cat. I, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I walked into this place one time and I asked the lady, does he ever eat that? It's just foolish. The answer was no. Absolutely not. She kind of gave me a funny look. No, he doesn't need it. Because he can't. He's a false God made by men. And God tells him, this God, the one true God, needs nothing because he is completely sufficient and satisfied in himself. He's telling him about this God of creation, his ultimate lordship, his aseity, and it even goes to his sovereignty. In verse 26. He said He made man. From one man He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And watch what He does. He marked out their appointed times in history in the boundaries of their land. Every single line, every single county line, every city line, every city limit, every state line, every national line, God marked it out. Remember that next time you complain about your school taxes. 
God marked those lines out. He did it. He's sovereign over land, nations, boundaries. He's sovereign over their times. He's sovereign over absolutely everything. And I don't want to exhaust this to, to a point of just going rampant, but if He's sovereign over everything, there's nothing He's not sovereign over. And I do not apologize or take that statement back. There is nothing rogue. There's nothing that happens that is by accident. There is no coincidence. It is the sovereign Lord of all, working all things. And they could very easily hear Paul say that and think, wait a minute. I thought that I made a willful choice to walk into the Areopagus here. To hear you, Paul. Yep. Because God sovereignly wanted you here to hear this message from my man, Paul. God has you here sovereignly in whatever seat you are because God wants you there. He's that sovereign. God has you next door to the right people because He saw that fit because He's that sovereign. God has you working next to people because He wanted that to happen because He's that sovereign and in control. And when you think like that, you're going to be messed up. But messed up in a good way. So much comfort comes from this. Because Paul knows I'm not accidentally in Athens. Paul knows these people are not accidentally putting me on trial. This is a sovereign situation that God is in control of and God is working. And God is doing this. He proclaims this boldly. Now most critics will take this and say, well, you know what? I don't think we should preach much theology in today's preaching because there's people that don't know and there's people that do know. And you might run some lost people off. You might run some weaker people off that just don't know as much. Paul says, I'm going to preach you some deep stuff. Didn't he just do that? He's preaching to them about God. And then he gets to the God of creation and God's purpose for creation. In verse 26, he tells them this. 27, excuse me. God did this, this creation, so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. Now, we know this. We've studied the rest of Scripture. This is not advocating that God is just waiting for you to come to Him. Oh, He's just, he's just hopeless and helpless. God created things so that you're without excuse. So you can see His creation and see all of His marvelous works and desire to know Him. Paul tells them this, that they would see, they would see and, and try to touch this God, try to know Him, because they were without excuse when you look to the heavens and see the glory of God declared in creation, as the psalmist says. And they're without excuse. Romans, Paul writes in Romans 1, verse 18, verse 19, what may be known about God is plain, because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Why? Because you can look at everything and know this basic fact. There is an almighty Creator of all of this. And His name is God. His name is Yahweh. There are no true atheists, judging by what Paul just said in Romans and in Acts 17. Heavens declare the glory of God. 
The sky proclaims the work of His hands. You are without excuse. If you say one, well, there's just no God. The psalmist says in Psalm 14.1, you are a fool. For the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You have chosen to ignore what's plain and obvious. And he tells him this about this God. This God is just not just this Creator who's distant. He says, seeing that He isn't far. What a smack in the face to the Epicurean philosophers who thought God was distant, if there even was a God. He tells you, there is a God, and He's near. He is here. He wants him to know that this God is an omnipresent God. And He is not bound to a temple. He is not bound to one place. God is all places at once. But they knew of this God. They knew of this idea. They knew that this was a possibility because Paul, he knows them. He knows their philosophy. In verse 28, he says this, For in Him we live and move, and have our being. Now, if you have a Bible with you, there's a little asterisk mark there and a little little letter next to that, isn't there? You see him quoting a philosopher. You guys even know this. As some of your own poets have said, have said we are his offspring. Just to further prove, I'm going to tell you about the God that you don't even know of. But he is actually so real and so knowable that you guys are close, you know there is a God like this, but you're just missing it. You don't know Him yet. But He is close. He is near to all who call upon His name. He tells them, in Him we live, in Him we move, in Him we have our being. You guys have this concept down, but I'm telling you, this is the God of heaven and earth. He is the one, Hebrews 1.3 says, who is sustaining all things by His powerful Word. You are moving in Him, and you are moving in Him because He saw fit to move in you in that way. If God stopped sustaining all things for one millisecond, everything would come crashing down. But He has not. And so therefore, everything is because He's doing it. And this is enough to just pray and close and go home right here for Paul, right? But He gives them more conviction. Next, in verse 29, He says this, Therefore, because of what I've just told you about the one true God, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. If this is an infinite, almighty creator, what makes you think that he can be one of your gods in your temple that you made? I just told you, he made everything. He made you. So for us to have this false idea that we can make our own God is absurd and Foolish. If God, if man creates God, then he's no God at all. But you'll, yet so often we set up our own gods in our heart and worship them in place of the Creator. And finally, he comes to God's universal command in verse 30. He leaves no stone unturned for this command either. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. God's universal command is for all people everywhere to repent. Whether it is idol worship, whether it is your sin that you're so entangled in, whether it is your life of self-pleasure and self-love and pride, you repent. 
all people, everywhere, all walks of life, no exceptions. Because in the past, God has overlooked your ignorance. God has let you live. God has let you, so far if you're here, if you are alive, it is because God's mercy has allowed you to be alive. And if you are lost, His mercy is just so great because you haven't been stricken dead yet by your sin against the Holy God. He tells them this, you guys are here because God has overlooked your, 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 your sin, your idolatry, because of His mercy. But He's not going to overlook it forever. His mercy will run out. His patience will run thin. Paul knew this truth. He says in 1 Timothy 1.13 that once I blasphemed in ignorance, but I was shown mercy. You think he's thankful for the mercy of God that day? On the road to Damascus? Absolutely. He, he tells them why they should repent. Here's why, verse 31. You say, I don't, I don't get the whole point of repentance. I think I'm just going to live my whole life, and in the end I'll just say, I believe in Christ, and it'll be all good. Look at verse 31. This is, this, is, this is maybe the most important thing some of you may ever hear in your entire life. For He has set a day when He, this same God He's been proclaiming to you, will judge the world with justice by the man He appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him, this man, from the dead. He said, I'm going to, this God will judge the world by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is worthy to judge, who is able to judge, who is the sovereign Creator, self-sufficient, just God of all, who is coming one day to judge wicked men. And He wants them to feel this weight from beneath their feet that they feel the fires of hell burning the soles of their shoes so that they see the urgency of their need to repent. Because in a moment, this man, this Jesus could return to judge the world. And if you're caught in your sins... Unforgiven by Christ, you will pay the penalty for all of them. And that reigns true today. Christ could return now to judge the world. Will you be ready? Will you be found in Him or in your sin? Paul wants them to know this. This day is still set. It is not being postponed. But it is coming. It is coming quickly. I urge you and I beg you to repent and turn to Christ alone for salvation today. Before I close this message, right now in your hearts, repent and turn to Christ the Savior. Now what a conclusion Paul gives them, right? He tells them this God is who He is and He requires you to repent or He will judge you. That was, that was the sermon. That was what he preached. And so, through that, Paul prompted a few responses. In verse 32, we said, they heard about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them sneered. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This was, I remember, a new, new concept. Paul was mocked. Paul was made fun of. Paul was laughed at. And if you preach Christ and point out the lies of people's sin, you will be laughed at, mocked, and sneered at as well. It is inevitable. It's a part of it. Jesus says, the world hates you. Remember that it hated me first. You're in good company. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when people insult you 
persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Don't focus on this stuff here on this earth because if they persecute you, you are blessed and you will be rewarded in heaven. Paul's stacking rewards in heaven here. They're sneering. There were some that sneered. There was some that speculated in verse 32. There was but others. They're kind of on the fence. They said, we, we want to hear you again on this subject. They hear about the resurrection. They think, oh man, uh, that's, that's some deep stuff there. Let's, let's come back. Hey, can you come back Friday? Friday, Friday at noon sounds good. We'll bring, bring the boys back. And, and Paul, if you could you know, give us a little more expansion on well, this resurrection business. Because this is new. We, we don't really know about it. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about this resurrection, Paul? They want another discussion. They want more intellectual conversation and they remain in their paganism and they go back to their temples and they go back to their stuff. And in verse 33, Paul left the council. The only one in this city with the message of the gospel rolls out. There were some that were prompted to speculate. But finally, there were some to salvation in verse 34. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, member of the Areopagus. That, 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 that's the, one of the guys that might have called the meeting to have Paul made fun of. That was one of the guys who was there. Let's hear this Paul guy on, on this stuff. This guy's crazy. Come check him out, man. And then he hears the message of the Gospel and it pierces his heart. Well, some of you might be even here today skeptical of the whole Jesus thing and I'm just going to go to church. Maybe I'll make fun of some stuff and see some funny, funny talking people. Maybe I'll get a little entertainment. And you've been pierced by the reality of your sin and judgment to come and you have been convicted that I've got to repent and turn to Christ here right now. This is, this is Dionysius. He joined Paul and believed literally. Not that he began to be a follower of Paul and his faith was in Paul. His faith was in Christ. He joined him and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there was Damaris, just a woman, you may say. And I hear this. I, I, people, I'm just a stay-at-home mom and I don't have very anybody to, to witness to and I, I know I should be preaching the Gospel. You don't know what kind of impact you can have on the Kingdom of God and for the Kingdom of God with just your child or children. What if this woman, Damaris, goes home and she has nine kids. And she brings her, her, her nine kids now into the nurture and admonition of the Lord and their kids are saved. And her kids go and preach Christ and more people are saved. What if she goes home to her husband and her pagan husband sees her come home and there's something different this afternoon about Damaris. She is joyful. She is full she is submissive. She is doing what I need her to do. She, she is doing things that I know not of. And he asked the simple question, Damaris, what's gotten into you, honey? And she tells him about this guy Paul and the message that he preached. And now dad is saved. Husband is saved. Could you, you think I can't have an impact on the kingdom of God? This Damaris, for some ever, whatever reason, he mentions her name. Just a woman. 
He was a soul snatched from hell because of the gospel to go on and lead others into salvation as well. And then there were others, a number of others. This wasn't just a, a huge influx of people being saved, but there was a number of people who came to Christ through this message that Paul preached. And maybe today there's some of you here that need to join and believe in Christ. Need to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus for the very first time. You've never repented of your sin. You've never trusted Christ to save you. I beg you now, you come to Christ today before it's everlasting too late. Because the message is clear. The command to repent is clear. And if you go out and forget about this command and forget about all this stuff and put, try to put it behind you, there will be a judgment that I believe 100% you will be called to give an account of this day. That you heard the truth, you walked away from the truth, and your judgment will be stricter and more severe having known the truth. Maybe you're a church person and you're in the same boat. And I've walked the aisle and I've lived the life of hell and paganism, but I you know, cling to Christ and whatever. And maybe one day it's all going to be fine and I, I claim Christ and don't live it and I'm... My only Christianity is just here on Sunday morning. That's no Christianity at all. It is a day by day, just as Paul lived. Maybe that's you. Your judgment will be far more severe. Judgment is coming on you if you're not in Christ. Any of you. Now, I want us to hypothetically think the best as we can with maybe some sanctified imagination. What if Paul had cowed down what if Paul had become discouraged after getting run out of town and town and town and town? Man, it's been a tough, tough time. I've been beaten. I've been imprisoned. And, you know, the response is not great. And even when I think things are turning up, bam, they run me out again. Now I'm here and I don't even have Timothy and Silas. I'm by myself in this pagan city. What if he had cowed down and remained silent and kicked back and just enjoyed the tourists, the tour, maybe taking a sabbatical, maybe just stop to rest for a little while? What if he wasn't perplexed at what was going on? What if he, because of his being perplexed, what if he didn't preach Christ? What if he didn't point out their lies? There's no Dionysius. There's no Damaris. There's no number of others who joined in belief in Christ. Now what if you, Christian, do the same thing? What if you aren't perplexed? What if you don't preach Christ? What if you don't point out the lies of a fallen sinful world? There will be no Damaris. There will be no Dionysius in your life. There will be no godly children that you raise for the next generation. It will be over. What if you don't do as Paul? But if the true Christ is precious to you, I promise you this, you will. You will join with Him in what we've seen today. But if He's not, you just simply won't. And I can rest in the fact that, hey, if you're not reaching people for Christ, you don't care about Christ. So then I pray for your soul. Tomorrow marks for a lot of people a holiday. But tomorrow marks 505 years since the year 1517 that a German monk named Martin Luther stood for the true gospel. And he, he, he goes to the town hall on the, at the Wittenberg Chapel there. And, and if you would, it was to post the latest news on the door. And he posts what's known as the 95 Theses 
challenging the Roman pagan Catholic Church of all their lies, all their indulgences, trying to buy people out of into heaven, trying to pay their way with money to get into the kingdom of God. And he nails the truth of the gospel in a way on this chapel door for all the world to see. And he stood seemingly alone. But as he famously said later on in his life, God plus one is majority. Maybe you're the only saved person in your family. You're in the majority. Maybe you're the only saved person at your job or your workplace. You're in the majority. Maybe you're a, a single, maybe you're a mother and, and, and your husband is not saved. None of your family is saved. God plus one is majority. Maybe you are a husband trying to lead a family with an unbelieving wife. God plus one is majority. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And this Martin Luther, five years later, when he had begun to flip the whole world upside down by the actual true gospel, he's called by the Holy Roman Emperor on trial, the most powerful man in the world, to recant his books, his preaching, his teaching, the things that he's been quoted saying. He's called to repent, recant or his death sentence. And here's what he says. He says, I'm bound by the Scriptures I've quoted and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. Since it's neither safe nor right to go against conscience, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And like Paul, he didn't compromise. When faced with everything pagan coming at him, he does not compromise. He wasn't swept away by them. But he stood firm and proclaimed the true Gospel. So help me God. Because the true Gospel is the only power unto salvation. That is, it is by grace through faith alone in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone that a man can be saved and justified before a holy God. And stand free and stand just and stand right and free from condemnation and judgment. That is the only way he stood firm in that message. Paul did. Luther did. Many of others in between and after did. So I ask you, will you join with these men? Stand firm, proclaiming the truth, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, it is with great humility that we can even stand before you. And I pray that you would take these words, Lord, you would press them down deep into our hearts and souls. That we would not just hear this and walk out and forget. Lord, that You would embed it so deeply in our minds that You would allow Your Word to change us, to encourage, even to convict. I pray that You would have Your way in our lives in everything that we do. Lord, help us to live day by day for the truth of Your Word and the truth of Your message of salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. 
If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness.